In 2019, Food in the Anthropocene and other international reports put out the call and made the case for urgent systemic action to transform our food systems if we are to have any hope of feeding 10 billion people well and safely within planetary boundaries by 2050. Halving food loss and waste, shifts to flexitarian diets, an agricultural revolution to radically intensify the quantity and quality of food production, all within existing agricultural lands with zero further expansion into natural ecosystems, are all part of the shifts called for to feed us, to preserve biodiversity and for the food system to become a net carbon sink from 2040 in line with the Paris Agreement. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. A global syndemic, food in the Anthropocene, calls for the great food transformation just some of the not-so-little-big things we're going to talk about in this episode. I'm really delighted to be speaking with Dr Mario Herrera and Dr Jessica Bogard today. Mario is a Chief Research Scientist at CSIRO Agriculture and Food and an Honorary Professor of Agriculture and Food Systems at the University of Queensland. Jessica is an accredited dietitian and public health nutritionist at CSIRO and a member of Mario's team. They are both involved in sustainable agriculture, food systems and nutrition research and they were both contributors to one or more of the change-making international reports that we'll discuss today. A very, very warm welcome and thank you to you, both Mario and Jessica. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so, so each day our energy options climate changes are in the news or on our social media. But what about the health and the sustainability of our food? what it means for and does to us and to the natural systems that make it possible. We're currently in the middle of the UN decade of action on nutrition and in many homes, restaurants and elsewhere, more and more people are talking about making the switch to eat less meat and to eat more plant-based foods for health and for environmental reasons. So what's driving that and why? Three big international research reports were released in 2019 and that from where I sit and work, seemed really groundbreaking as they cut to the systems and links that connect our health and the sustainability of our food and food systems. Arriving amid a nationwide drought, it struck me that these reports really helped to up the ante to help us to see the problems and the potential solutions a little more clearly, bringing planetary boundaries much closer to home. Mario and Jessica, does that sound like a reasonable lens or, or prism through which to approach these big reports that we're talking about today? I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, there is um, real momentum gathering around this systems view and, and understanding the linkages um, across these um, these systems, these impacts, um, and and how they relate to our food system. Oh, thanks, Jessica. Mario, happy, happy reasonable reasonable way to dig in. Oh, absolutely! I think that you, uh, you you've you've really set set the conversation really well. Um, these are enormous challenges, uh, and it's really these are really the most important things that we have to solve, uh, probably in our lifetime. Yes, and they're rushing at us, aren't they? Okay, so. The reports that we're going to talk about are the Lancet Report, The Global Syndemic of Obesity, Undernutrition and Climate Change, and the the Lancet Eat uh, Report, Food in the Anthropocene. But before we dig in, Mario and Jessica, can I ask each of you to tell us a little bit more about yourselves and what your current research interests are at CSIRO? Obviously, 
that's huge, but just a, just a few key points you might like people to know more about you. Okay. Um, we have a group at CSIRO uh, on food systems and global change where we are interested in developing sustainable solutions uh, to planet-proof the, the food system. And uh, the, this might be a, related to the nutrition transitions. It might be related to climate change, to land use change. Uh, we work a lot on trying to engage with different stakeholders to really start a conversation of why we need to effect these changes. And we do this both in Australia and in different parts of the world. Part of our strategy is to connect deeply with the, with the big initiatives like the World Food Summit, like the IPCC, and so on, to really bring the messages that are driving the, the, the global conversations uh, back to Australia and to our constituents. It's sometimes about how do we promote diversification for a, in smallholder systems, or while in other cases it might be a, a working with uh, communities in the Pacific Islands to work on the double burden of nutrition. And in other, in other cases, we might be doing global scenarios of how to... A, how to mitigate greenhouse gases. So it's it's a very broad agenda, but it's all significant um, and it's all related to, to the one thing, global changes. What is really actually driving the dynamics of unsustainability that we are uh, experiencing at the moment? Thank you. <laughs> Huge. Jessica, what are some, within all of that, uh, nutrition security and more, what, what are you focusing on? So I, you know, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm um, an accredited practicing dietitian. So I trained originally um, um, in that area and worked as a clinical dietitian. So, you know, working one-on-one um, -on -one with people um, on how to improve their diets to um, treat illness or um, prevent disease. Um, and I think, um, you know, that's an incredibly valuable area of work. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I found myself in that space becoming, I suppose, increasingly frustrated, you know, that we should be doing more to prevent people um, getting these diet-related illnesses. And so um, many years ago, that really sort of sparked my interest in working, um, you know, more upstream in the food system and what we can do in relation to um, the foods that we produce to um, try and improve health outcomes. And so I, you know, was lucky enough to... Um, uh, work. I started working in, initially in fisheries and aquaculture in those production systems and thinking about how we can um, try and make those systems more nutrition sensitive. Um, and so that's, uh, and, and then I did my PhD in that area and then was lucky enough to join Mario's team at CSIRO doing exactly that. So um, thinking, uh, trying to leverage our um, programs and work in agriculture to try and improve um, health and nutrition outcomes. Fantastic. Well, we're all very grateful for your team and what you do. <laughs> Mario, you are a regular contributor to, as you've mentioned, to many important global initiatives at the heart of sustainability of our food systems, including the reports that um, I've, I've mentioned we're talking about. And you and Jessica are both listed as commissioners and fellows of the Lancet, the Global Syndemic Report. Just before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, what, what's it like being a part of those rock star interdisciplinary international teams. What's it, what's it like to be working on one of those uh, studies? Is it long and onerous or does it punch along quite quickly? It's, it's, it's everything, actually. It's, it's, it's certainly long and arduous because it's, these, are, these are processes where we're trying to, to establish the evidence uh, with which we can make recommendations and so on. And, uh, you know, the evidence is sometimes very difficult to come by and to find and to distill in messages that are uh, of significance for, for consumers, for policymakers and so on. It is fascinating as well because you're working with teams uh, uh, comprising, you know, from lawyers to food manufacturers to people working on ethics to 
people working on, uh, to, to dietitians like Jess, to the nutritionists. Uh, so you, you end up learning a lot. It's a truly a multidisciplinary team. Uh, and in, in some cases, we thought that multidisciplinarity was working in agriculture with the livestock scientists and the crop scientists and the soil person. But this is really a, a completely different, different dimension. This is truly different sectors coming across together to solve these, these grand challenges. Yeah, and different types of knowledges coming together, which is always uh, really exciting and challenging to broker, but, but delivers great things. Yes, and at the end of the day, it, it's, at, it's at these interaction points between sectors where we find the greatest chances for uh, coming up with solutions. Yes, innovation on the edge, a bit like permaculture, dare we say. <laughs> um, so just quickly, obviously, lots of reports, but were there um, some really exciting workshops or meetings that were held here in Australia where people came together, perhaps for Eat Lancet or... or the global syndemic? Um, yes. Uh, so in relation to, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I was uh, involved as a fellow in the global syndemic report. Um, so that was, um, you know, led by um, Professors Boyd Swinburne and Bill Dietz. Uh, and so there was um, a series of, um, uh, well, a couple of face-to-face, -face, you know, gatherings of, some of all of these experts coming together. Um, we had a couple of them in Australia um, and um, others in New Zealand uh, and the United States. Great. And um, presumably there were other, many other Australians involved. I think uh, Eat Lancet had a CEO from Australia, didn't it? Dr. Alessandro De Maio? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Yes. And Sandra was part of, of the Eat Lancet and yeah, he. That's when he was working at, at the Eat Foundation. Yes, fantastic. And now he's very busy being CEO of Vic Health. <laughs> okay, let's start with the Lancet report, the global syndemic of obesity under nutrition and climate change, that came out quite early in two thousand and nineteen. Um, with COVID, we're certainly all learning about uh, and how to live with a pandemic, and the issues of the syndemic certainly impact on those with COVID sometimes. Um, but what is this global syndemic? Jessica, can you provide perhaps outline its key elements? Uh, so I think the the value add from this particular commission was uh, re really in this recognition that obesity is very closely linked to uh, two other major global challenges, these being undernutrition and climate change. Um, so the report describes these three uh, big global challenges as the global syndemic. So the word syndemic, it means that these sort of challenges, they coexist in time and place. They, um, they actually interact with each other and then they also have common uh, systematic drivers. So, it, I mean, that all sounds sort of um, perhaps a little bit daunting and um, um, very complex to tackle, but um, if you think about it, it, on the flip side of that, this sort of global syndemic, it also means that um, if we're addressing some of those underlying systematic drivers, then you actually have opportunity for double or, or, or triple win solutions as well. Um, so it's so it's really recognizing that yeah these these big big ideas these big global challenges that we are facing um, this century um, you know we there are opportunities to sort of look for the synergies within them um, and 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 sort of yeah intervene at that level to to get win win wins across um, across those areas. It's quite fantastic, isn't it? So a government policy about transport or the introduction of a new brand of food, uh, everybody can sort of bring uh, a few different different perspectives to to the approvals of things in a more holistic way. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, and it's about bringing, you know, um, bringing those different perspectives together um, where you really have such, you know, these, these opportunities, you know, all of these different disciplines that are involved in our food system, as Mario mentioned, the, the commissioners on the report are from such diverse disciplines. You have um, economists, health professionals, um, um, you know, human, human rights experts, um, lawyers, um, you know, people from business, all of these disciplines that are involved in the decision-making processes around our food systems. And so by bringing them together, then um, you have this uh, sort of um, incredible opportunity. So... The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, they're pretty central to all of this, aren't they? Is, is, um, 
and I believe that they enshrine uh, a sort of a new definition of malnutrition or, or what good nutrition is. Can you sort of outline what that is? I, I was just I just wanted to get the the shared understanding of what you know that malnutrition happens. Um, yeah, in many ways, doesn't it? It's sort of a, the result of failing food systems, but it can include undernutrition micronutrient deficiencies but and obesity and they can co coexist and co-occur across within populations households and across our life yeah absolutely yeah so um malnutrition is actually an umbrella term um so it sort of can cover a number of uh, a number of different issues sometimes referred to the double or even the triple burden um, of malnutrition so it encompasses um, overweight and obesity uh, as well as um, undernutrition, which is when people don't get sufficient um, energy or, or micronutrients, and as well as uh, micronutrient deficiencies, which is also sort of called hidden hunger because it it, um, it may not be sort of visibly evident that people are not getting um, sufficient quantities of those many micronutrients that are needed for good health, but it can actually be influencing their physiology and their uh, their health status. So these um, these forms of malnutrition um, they um, can um, you know coexist in the same populations, um, the same households even, and, and even in some cases the same individuals. So for example, you may have someone who uh, suffers from overweight or obesity who actually also doesn't get sufficient uh, micronutrients in their diet, so they might be deficient in certain vitamins or minerals. Um, so um, and underlying this is um, our food system. So in all of these sort of um, these types of malnutrition, um, at the core of it is that people um, aren't consuming healthy diets. They're just contributing to non-communicable NCDs and chronic disease and so forth, which is a, such a burden. The um, Global Syndemic uh, report also was accompanied by a, a, a policy summary for policymakers, which is really succinct, good reading, um, and it talks about um, examples of triple duty actions that people from different sectors can work together to take. There's some really nice examples. I just want, and there's, I think there are six or so. Um, Mario, first up, one of them, I was wondering if we could talk about just how these double and triple duty actions can work in practice or so people can visualise them a bit more. Uh, one of them they talk up is uh, is about reducing red meat consumption, and obviously it's in the main report as well. Uh, Mario, could you describe some of the triple benefits that might apply to red meat and reducing our consumption of it here in Australia? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, well, some, some some of the benefits from, from reduced red meat consumption come from uh, reducing the, the amount of greenhouse gases. Uh, so that's an environmental benefit. So, and also through the reductions of a, of land use. Uh, livestock have a very large footprint. And, uh, if we could actually consume less livestock, then you would imagine that uh, that land could be repurposed for a range of other things, uh, including reforestation and a, other uses of land that might sequester carbon or a, in places where there's competition for cropland, you could actually uh, perhaps uh, change that land to other uses that could provide other nutritional benefits for, for society. Uh, from the perspective of, of excessive consumption also, you could think that uh, you would improve on your, uh, on your risks for some of the NCDs. So although it's one of the many factors that exist around the world, uh, well, it's, it's a significant factor. But it's also very important uh, within, within the whole nutrition field to also think that you need to really increase the consumption of fruits and vegetables and also of, of healthy foods and also get rid first, first and foremost of, of discretionary food. So it's it's a little bit more complex than just saying stop eating meat. No, no, we all we all need protein. Yes, and and on the other on the other hand, uh, this doesn't mean that Australia needs to uh, stop producing, because there are very vibrant export markets where you could actually uh, 
maintain uh, the revenues from the beef sector and maintain the social uh, the social importance of the sector for for producers and for for a range of value chains as well. Okay, another a second example that I thought was. Uh, uh very interesting, is around sustainable dietary guidelines. This is detailed in the main report a lot, perhaps under ultra-processed foods as syndemic drivers. Um, Jessica, our national dietary guidelines, of course, play a huge and important role uh, across community, you know, knowledge sectors and how we live and eat. Um, and they, and they, they've, they're up for review or they, I think they're in the process of but, but I, I believe a number of other countries are, are currently amending their dietary guidelines to incorporate sustainability considerations so that it's health and nutrition but also sustainability wrapped into common guidelines. Um, is that happening here or what's the outlook here? Guidelines are designed to be reviewed periodically to ensure recommendations reflect the latest science in terms of links between diet and health. But we're seeing a growing trend whereby some countries around the world are also considering environmental sustainability alongside those health outcomes. Colleagues at CSIRO and I are actually conducting a review of this at the moment to see how different countries are including this. We found that there are about 35 countries around the world at the moment that include some mention of environmental sustainability in their current dietary guidelines, including Australia. But there is a lot of variation in how this is done. So, for example, um, some countries mention it briefly, uh, just as something of importance, whereas others consider it much more deeply and actually present specific strategies for how people can adopt more sustainable diets. So, for example, Denmark, um, they re recommend that people reduce meat consumption in general and choose fish, pork and poultry over products like beef and lamb. The Australian Dietary Guidelines, uh, they were last published in 2013 and they include an appendix to their main report where environmental sustainability is discussed. And it includes some general recommendations about avoiding overconsumption, about reducing food waste and eating seasonally. But it does stop short of any specific recommendations about particular foods as being more sustainable choices than others. But as you mentioned, uh, in July this year, the Australian government announced the next review of the dietary guidelines so it will be interesting to see whether environmental sustainability is included. In one of your presentations, I saw a lovely diagram about the projections of what production we'd need for all of our food stocks uh, to meet our dietary guidelines. And it really surprised me that our vegetable production is somewhere where we could really hit a threshold pretty quickly if everyone was to eat the right the required amount and obviously COVID and the lack of fruit pickers and all sorts of supply chain issues are really coming to bite us at the moment during COVID. Can you, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this is one of the really interesting areas I think we have where we could sort of um, align our food production system with our dietary goals. So some other colleagues at CSIRO did some interesting work, you know, comparing um, domestic food production and, uh, and quantities relative to our growing population and, you know, asking the question, do we actually produce enough foods for people to consume the recommended diet? Um, and, you know, you, um, it's sort of different trajectories for different food groups, but you mentioned um, vegetables as one of the key ones because I know it, it, we all struggle to eat enough vegetables. Um, but actually in Australia, based on our domestic production, we actually don't produce enough for everybody to consume the recommended quantities. Now, some of that gap is made up from importing foods. Um, for example, um, canned tomatoes is a big um, import um, of vegetables in Australia, and so we do get some from that. Um, but, uh, yeah, there is certainly, um, of course, what we produce has direct implications for the availability of that, um, of that um, food group as well as the affordability. Um, and so um, there is, you know, a, a, an opportunity there to sort of, better align our agricultural system with um, nutrition and health goals. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it, because it really really reinforces how important growing your own actually is. It's only a part of the food system, but it can be a very significant 
part of it. The Global Syndemic Report and the Policy Brief both speak about the importance of building and sharing the global syndemic narrative. I really liked that. Um, so that all actors can see where and how they can take action across silos uh, and, and that action can, can happen in different ways and at different scales, obviously locally, nationally, internationally. Mario, from where you sit, is the narrative kicking in? Is it helping to build new conversations or new research collaborations here in Oz and, and elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the simultaneous launch of these three reports has really uh, created momentum in the way we see, uh, well, in the way that we're assessing the needs for the food system to change. Um, I think that we see mo movement in policy circles. Certainly governments are very interested in in starting to design actions towards uh, towards healthier food systems, and you know the argument is quite persuasive. Imagine, imagine if you could, uh, with a series of policy actions and, and and also by changing consumer behavior and by everybody doing their own bit. Imagine if we could solve simultaneously. Uh, a health crisis that we have coming from NCDs, uh, from uh, the double burden of nutrition, large numbers of of people with obesity, and also the other forms of malnutrition. And imagine that if you could solve the the environmental crisis all at the same time, and it's all linked with how we consume uh, food. So, you know, governments are lining up because this means a reduction in the health bills. Uh, and this is really important as populations get uh, uh, older and older. Well, then the chances of, of people ending up in hospital with uh, diabetes, with uh, heart disease and so on are significant. And it's actually ta uh, taxpayers' money paying for this. So imagine. That the, the reductions in the health uh, bills could be enormous. And on the other hand, if, if we could actually meet the targets for the Paris Agreement at the same time, uh, it's, it's, it's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic aspiration. We need to do a lot and we need to do it with, with concerted actions, but certainly uh, we see an alignment. You know, probably the first, the first part was the alignment that uh, there is a problem. Uh, that's what probably we, uh, we managed to do last year. Before that, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, it's very inconclusive and so on. But now I think there's no doubt that we uh, acknowledge that. Uh, look, the food system as it's configured, it's not really a, meeting any of our goals of, of human and planetary well-being. Yeah. And, um, and, I mean, in Australia, there are all sorts of great health interdisciplinary research groups underway, like Charles Perkins in Sydney and yeah. at Sydney University and no doubt in Brisbane, all sorts of amazing ones at the George Institute, so many groups doing amazing work. Do you see, uh, do you see the reports we're talking about actually hitting home at, at, at a government policy level? Uh, well, it is, it is certainly hit with the, with the scientific community. The scientific community are definitely fully on board about the need uh, on working on, on healthy diets from sustainable food systems. Uh, in some places of, of some parts of government, even some states, for example, in Victoria, where Sandro is, uh, this this is probably more advanced that, that than anywhere else, uh, but it, it will definitely come. It will definitely come because it will have economic consequences, and, and that's the crucial part. And also, Australia as a as a signatory to to many of these international commitments. Thank you. And Jessica, in the nutrition space, all intimately interlinked with what Mario's talking about, of course. But in your everyday research or interaction with the public and colleagues, do you feel like the narrative is gaining momentum and helping you do what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned at the beginning the, the 
that this uh, we're in the decade of action on nutrition. Um, so, you know, and there's a number of sort of key global initiatives where nutrition um, has really been put front and centre because it's in relation to the sustainable development goals, we talk about nutrition as both a driver of, of sustainable development as well as an outcome of. So, you know, we need healthy populations in order to, to um uh, be engaged in education to um, to be employed in you know in the economy and contributing to and contributing to um, national development and um, we also need all of those sort of things in place um, good healthcare systems um, so on and so forth in order to ensure good uh, positive health outcomes for our population so you know it it is sort of very interlinked and 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 front and center of a lot of these initiatives so. You know, I, nutrition science has evolved out of the medical sciences, and so it's traditionally sat within that health sphere. Um, but now we are seeing more and more that it certainly has relevance um, across these different disciplines, these different sectors, and and so um, we're seeing that you know in the scientific community as well. Okay, let's talk now about food in the Anthropocene, the Eat Lancet Commission on Healthy Diets from Sustainable Food Systems. Uh, this report calls for the great food transformation, and it offers a massive contribution to modelling and picturing scientific targets for action, uh, leveraging planetary boundaries, frameworks and methodologies. Mario, you're a co-author of the report. Huge congratulations to you. Um, would you like to, to, uh, to describe what it set out to do and how it went about doing that? Okay. Yeah, the, the Eat Lancet Commission was really the, the merging of two communities. Basically, uh, uh, a nutrition and health community concerned with, with the double and triple burden of nutrition, worried about the increases in, in obesity in many, well, across, across the world, while also uh, worried about the, the pervasive under in in low, low and middle income countries and not well everywhere as well. You know, you, you see it here in Australia as well. And then on the other hand, there was an environmental community really worried about greenhouse gases originally. You know, it, it, that's where it all started. Around 2009, uh, there were some really influential papers uh, that found that, uh, well, if, if you really stopped if, if, if you re, reconfigured your diet, you could actually have very significant uh, climate change uh, benefits. Uh, but it was never connected to the health side. So when we found that those dietary actions could also help with the NCDs, well, then this commission was formed and said, well, what would be a suitable diets that could actually help us reach both uh, the, the human and planetary well-being. So the commission started by really looking at what, what would be a healthy diet that actually uh, provides, uh, provides nourishment and protects people from disease. And it came up with a, with a series of recommendations on on the quantities of certain foods that, that needed to be included. On the other hand, the concept of the planetary boundaries, which is also something that, that created a, a very significant, you know, it was a very significant intellectual, intellectual leap on how we think about the impacts of humanity on, on our biogeochemical cycles, on, on, you know, of keeping an atmosphere and keeping enough water and, keeping the planet running sort of within bounds of, of what, what is acceptable for humans. And we, within that, uh, there were six boundaries chosen. Greenhouse gases, um, the amount of water used, the amount of cropland used, nitrogen and phosphorus cycles that can be polluting in many cases, and biodiversity, which is important. So as modeling scenarios, a... Uh, were worked out, and the main findings are, are relatively simple. The main findings are, if you just change the diet, and by the way, it's, it needs to be a diet that is, that is fairly balanced. It's called a flexitarian diet because it includes 
It's mostly a plant-based diet, lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, lots of legumes, relatively small amounts of, of sugars and discretionary foods. Uh, it would be moderate in the consumption of animal source foods and uh, also probably needing increases in, in fish consumption as well. So imagine yourself rebalancing your plate. If the star of the plate used to be the piece of meat, well, now make it make the star of the plate the veggies and have a little piece of meat. But we want to see that plate f full of colors, full of colors and variety and, and good things. Okay, so that, that was the thing. So if we change to that diet full of colors, basically we would be able to meet the, the greenhouse gas boundary. Why? Because that rebalancing of the components of the diet would actually help a lot reduce emissions from the animal uh, component and also emissions from land use. But the other environmental dimensions, which were nitrogen and phosphorus and water, would not be met. Why? Because we need more vegetables, more fruits, more even more cereals. So at the end of the day, to really be within the other boundaries, we also needed to increase production and reduce food waste, which are also essential components of the Eat Lancet study that people mention less. You know, it's not only about diet, it's doing the three things at the same time that will actually lead us to be within a, a safe operating space for the planet. Reduce waste, eat better, and produce more. Those are the three things. Thank you very much. I had a question for you about what the six Earth systems modelled in the uh, in the study were, and you've covered those just then very, very you know, comprehensively. Um, across those six variables where we're overshooting the planetary boundaries and biodiversity is frankly, pretty terrifying, and obviously it's terrifying here in Australia as well in the wake of drought and bushfires and escalating hot land mass and soil. What are the top planetary boundaries where we're most overshooting and are they the same here? Uh, well, the, the mo if you look at the original uh, Rockstrom report, uh, they would be the nitrogen boundary uh, we have a lot of reactive nitrogen, but you know it's a it's a consequence of us trying to uh, to increase productivity. It's it's fertilizers. It's also increasing demand for animal products. A lot of uh, runoff of manures in many places, and so we have we have way too much nitrogen in the, in the system. Then biodiversity would be the other one. And, and we are getting there on the, on the climate one. Water in some places has already been transgressed very significantly as well. So the low fruit areas for Australia to focus on in terms of planetary boundaries within our food system, nitrogen, phosphorus? Oh, land, land, yeah, land use, water, you know, water would be important. Biodiversity through uh, reducing land clearing. Yeah. And, and, and intensifying where we do produce sustainably and well rather than extending where we're yeah, producing both. That's, that's a prerequisite. The, the report actually put that as a boundary condition, trying to achieve everything within the same line. I love the way you describe the, the diet as uh, the rainbow diet. If we just need more colours on the plate, I think that's a, that is a great way to describe it. Um, other, in other circles, it's referred to as the uh, healthy reference diet or the flexitarian diet, and I know it's been a bit controversial uh, in some circles, but, of course, it is meant to be applied culturally and in context to fit. Well, some countries' diets need to change more than others. Jessica, would you like to, oh, I don't know, just chat about, the, talk about the reference diet a bit that Mario's already uh, re referred to um, and perhaps describe what's been a bit controversial about it but why it's still a fantastic uh, shake it up. As Mario mentioned, the, or the reference diet um, that they've used in this sort of global modelling study, um, it's just that. It, it, it's, a, it's sort of a reference diet that's um, 
it's quite broad in nature. So, you know, they give recommended um, sort of quantities for consumption um, for a range of different food groups. What is actually very clear that it's sort of a general guide. And for each of these food groups, there's sort of a range um, of intake that's um, that's recommended. And the, the sort of the key thing is that um, uh, different national diets and cultural diets around the world um, are actually you know, broadly consistent with this sort of overall, um, you know, global diet. Um, and that's sort of the next phase, I think, is um, from this sort of global report is then to take this sort of um, global reference diet and think, well, okay, how does this apply to different countries, to different cultures, to different countries, different cultures, different population groups, and think how do our, how could our dietary patterns sort of, how do they fit currently and, and where are the opportunities, uh, you know, the different areas in different groups um, to adapt. You know, um, animal source foods, um, meat in particular, um, it's um, a very nutritious food. It's um, often rich in lots of micronutrients. They're highly bioavailable, which means that, that they're easily absorbed. Um, and so um, they're, they're a core food group um, in, you know, dietary guidelines terms. Um, in, um, and in many, many countries and uh, around the world, you know, it's actually important to be increasing consumption from that food group. Um, infants is a, is a population group where animal source food consumption is really key. Um, you know, um, you can imagine small children, they have small stomach capacity, but they're growing incredibly quickly. Um, so animal source foods are really important um, at that stage of life for nutrition, you know, good optimal health. So um, I guess that's one of the areas of controversy of the diet is that people might interpret it as being prescriptive for a, a you know um, a low level of meat intake, but actually it is it does describe a range and that um, you know that that needs to be adapted uh, to different groups. Um, I, I was I, I saw one of your presentations about this and and also in the Lancet report there are all those diagrams which show the different percentage overshoots and so forth. And I was really surprised by um, the overshoot around starchy vegetables for, for, for the global picture, that it was something like 293% on the health, healthy food boundary. Where, where's the problem with starchy vegetables uh, in terms of healthy diets and in terms of where on the planet? Um, the starchy, starchy root crops and vegetables, they're, you know, they're um, a core staple food, um, you know, in, in many food cultures. Um, the trouble is in, um, in particularly sort of Western um, cultural diets, um, we've taken a real liking to processed foods that um, are based on those starchy staples, things like uh, fries, <laughs> hot chips. Um, so, you know, um, these are places, you know, where um, overconsumption um, becomes an issue. Um, also in, you know, in sort of uh, low or middle income countries where um, diversity is an issue. So um, people are relying, you know, they're related to the food system, those um, core staple foods um, are tend to be widely available um, and, and, and low cost. Staple foods um, without having enough diversity from the other food groups. So um, in some of those contexts, then um, overconsumption of the starchy vegetables um, or root crops um, becomes sort of an issue in that it um, is de you know, displacing um, other food groups that we need um, to get that um, diversity of nutrient intake in our diets. Um, of course, we're eating enough food to fulfill our energy needs, but we also need to be consuming the appropriate diversity of foods um, to ensure that we get that range of those range of micronutrients that we need for good health as well. Um, so it's that balance of quantity and quality. Um, what is the sort of quantity of red meat that we in Australia, where we are, I think, the world's leading red meat eaters, how much red meat should a middle-aged adult consume? So uh, according to our Australian Dietary Guidelines, for um, our, the food group, which is uh, lean meat and poultry, and that also includes fish, um, eggs, and then um, plant-based sources of those protein foods, things like tofu, nuts, um, seeds, beans, legumes, all those under other wonderful foods. Um, in terms of serves per day, men and women, we need two to two and a half serves of those foods per day. Now, a serve of those food groups, it sort of um, it depends which thing you're looking at, but in terms of the meat, it's around a serve would be about 100 grams raw. Um, but if we're talking specifically about red meat, um, in our Australian Dietary Guidelines, um, we have 
um, a weekly, a suggested weekly limit um, of 455 grams per person per week. It's are a core food, so you know we do recommend that they form part of a healthy diet. Um, and so many many population groups in Australia actually wouldn't consume um, that quantity of meat. Um, but one, I think one of the key issues that sort of gets overlooked here is that actually we actually um, have quite a high consumption of um, processed meats. So um, those um, processed meats um, that actually are, can poten are potentially harmful for health um, are, are sort of taking up a lot of that meat consumption. And why are they harmful? Some processed meats um, are contributing to some of those diet-related diseases like cancers, um, cardiovascular disease risk uh, and others. So it's some of the ultra-processed foods. Let's just wrap up on um, the Lancet Eat report. Um, it talks very clearly about strategies to meet by 2050 uh, with the two big targets that Mario has spoken about, scientific targets for healthy diets and sustainable food production. And it talks about five big strategies. I think the first one it, we've spoken about a lot, strategy one is about uh, a, a global shift towards healthy diets with at least 50% reduction in global consumption of less healthy foods like, like added sugars and red meat. Um, and then minimising waste is a, a big, big strategy up there. But then there are other strategies there about um, uh, re reorienting agricultural priorities from producing high quantities of food towards more nutrition-rich or greater quality food. Would you like to talk about the, the, the agricultural land-focused strategies, Mario? But part of the reason why the food system is as it is now is because we've always focused on trying to produce cheap food. Uh, and cheap food uh, has come about by growing uh, cereals efficiently in, in very large areas. Uh, so the, the cereals will actually give you a lot of, the, a lot of your kilocalorie uh, consumption. And uh, a real problem is that in, in many parts of the world, we really don't grow enough vegetables and, and fruits and legumes and so on. So yeah, and the diversity of crops. So basically, the, the beauty of, of focusing now on nutrition is that it really helps us to uh, use it as a driver to shape agriculture. So in partly, we will still need big farms growing cereals and everything. But you know, there should be a lot more support for growing uh, fruits, vegetables, pulses, and all the rest of the variety of foods that we actually need. It's been, we, we've actually created a little funnel by which we focused on just too few crops that we, that we actually uh, not only fund, but that we also research. Most of the research is in, is in the big staples that, you know, because, because of economic considerations, in many cases, these are important export crops for countries. Uh, and, and so on. So, but we need to reshape that. And now we need to really think of, of small and medium enterprises that will actually uh, help uh, support the value chains of new nutritious products. And I think that that's, that's crucial. In, in some of, some other countries, this is uh, more balanced, but I think that in Australia, it's really important to focus on on these other parts of, of the diet. You know, now we've, we've produced bread, but now let's produce everything that goes with that bread. Or we've produced the base of the pizza, now let's consider what goes on top. That's the, that's the important. Can I add to that, Anthea? You know, Mario's talked about the, the importance of the production systems, that we need diverse production systems and the appropriate, you know, research that supports that. And, you know, that extends throughout the whole sort of food supply chain as well. You know, we, we need the adequate research for the technology and, and the innovation in the, um, in the processing sector, in the distribution sector, um, in retail, and, and then, of course, the, at the consumption end. So um, support for that 
diversity in the food system in terms of food groups and the um, nutritional variation that you get from that diversity um, is crucial um, throughout the whole chain from agriculture through to consumption. Yeah, and more, more diverse foods and more diverse food systems running complementarily and parallel perhaps, you know, which we're seeing, you know, at the local and regional level and obviously we're also always embedded in international export markets. Um, Mario, as, as we wrap up, are there some ideas that you'd like to throw out into the conversation as we continue this series? Yeah, sure. I, you know, for me, what, what I tell people always is, this might seem really overwhelming and uh, that might create a little bit of, uh, you know, of, of inaction. But in reality, what I, what I say is do something. Do something, even if it's small. Just the, the worst is not do anything about the problem. Even if it is not putting that ham in the sandwich or at lunchtime. That you've already created a vegetarian meal by by that, and and reduce your consumption of a of 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 processed meat, for example. It's little things like that. Think of the lights of the house. Think of a reducing portion sizes. A, it's it's small things, but we have a collective responsibility for doing this. So it's not also not about waiting for the government or the private industry to do something. We have the future in our hands and we need to contribute to it. So all the small actions will actually help us achieve uh, all this, this, this enormous grand challenge. And being part of the conversation and, and uh, uh, making a contribution where you can. Jessica, would anything you'd like to uh, wrap up with, your double or triple duty action you'd like to see in your suburb or in your home? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I totally understand and appreciate that um, all of the messages out there around, around food and diet and what's healthy and what's not can be, can be overwhelming. Um, but, you know, as Mario said, there, you know, there are um, simple things that all of us can do if we want to um, improve our health um, and also um, reduce our impact on the environment. So, um, junk foods I mentioned that's one thing that I'm sure all of us can do is you know um, reduce our junk food consumption um, some of us can reduce our meat intake um, if we're above those recommendations um, we can all probably also try and reduce our food waste um, I'm sure we're all guilty of letting um, lovely fresh produce um, um, <laughs> um, disintegrate in the bottom of the fridge um, and you know so that's something that we could that we could all um, work on as well bake a pie do do something but just don't let food rot in in the in the refrigerator yeah well on that note we'll all go and clean up our our fridge's bottom drawer and um i'd like to thank you both so much for joining me on uh, nourishing matters to chew on and uh wish you the very very best for your ongoing very important work that is just so exciting thank you thanks anthea cheers thank you very much anthea it's a pleasure Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.